0: Well, as I've already mentioned, we are about to launch into a week filled with teaching on the armor of God for our young people, our children, and it will be followed by a six-week summer study for all the entire church on the armor of God. And so, as I was thinking about what to do with the next two Sundays, I thought it would be uh, perhaps helpful for us to go to the passage in the New Testament that addresses this issue of the armor of God in specific and spiritual warfare in general. And so I hope that as we do that, this Sunday and next Sunday, it will serve just to kind of tie all these things together, our kids camp and our summer super study and uh, just kind of tie it all up uh, in a way that will be helpful and uh, maybe even inspire those of you who are getting ready to serve this week uh, about the exciting subject that you get to pass on to these children, um, and then also um, motivate all of us to be a part of the summer super study where we can dive deeper into this subject of the armor of God. And so if you're uh, not there yet, I want to invite you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter six, Ephesians chapter six, a very familiar passage, verses 10 through 20. Let me read these verses to you, we'll pray, and we'll talk about them. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, Paul writes, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. With this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. And pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Father, we... Again, thank you for your word. And we pray now that your spirit would enlighten us to understand this text and enable us to apply it to our lives. Use me as the preacher to make your word understandable and applicable and cause the hearers here to be receptive and responsive to your word. Thank you for this privilege that we have to come before your holy word. We pray that it would have its intended effect in transforming our lives for your glory, we pray, amen. Well, over the past three months, we have been watching the gut-wrenching images of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Relentless shelling, bombing, and airstrikes have reduced many cities and towns to rubble. Thousands of combatants and civilians have been killed and countless others have been wounded. Millions have been displaced. The entire world economy has been disrupted. Europe's worst war in decades is definitely taking its toll. Closer to home, over the past three weeks, we've been watching the equally gut-wrenching images of the startling string of mass shootings and murders in our own country. Buffalo, New York, Uvalde, Texas, Tulsa, Oklahoma, Ames, Iowa, Racine, Wisconsin, Chattanooga, Tennessee, Chester, Virginia, Phoenix, Arizona, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and most recently just north of us in Centerville. Even in the United States of America where we enjoy unparalleled freedoms and pride ourselves in law and order, there is no safe place anymore. You can get shot at school, you can get shot at a grocery store, you can get shot at the doctor's office, at a movie theater, at a graduation ceremony, at church, at a concert, at a vacation cabin, in the country, and even in your own backyard. And we've gotten used to seeing makeshift memorials in all sorts of unusual and unexpected places honoring the the latest casualties of this dangerous, fallen, war-torn world in which we live. Now, most people view these recent events in our world and in our country from a purely secular perspective. And consequently, these events have served simply to pour more fuel on the cultural and political wars that have already been raging all over the world about race and gender identity and abortion and gun control. But as Christians who view everything from the perspective of what the Bible says and sees all of life through the lens of Scripture, we realize there's a lot more going on behind the scenes, don't we? These are not cultural problems that can be solved politically, but spiritual problems that can only be solved biblically. And based on these verses in Ephesians and others throughout throughout God's word, we know that there is a spiritual war raging between Satan and his followers and Christ and his followers. Which means that the entirety of our lives is spent in what should be considered, could be considered, should be considered a war zone. I don't know if that was your mentality this morning, when you woke up and got out of bed, that you were living in a war zone. You were about to step out of your home, realizing that you are behind enemy lines. You are in enemy territory. And not only is there a war going on all around us, but there is a war going on inside of us. Paul Tripp, in his book Lead, said, said it this way, quote, because we live in a fallen world, because there really is an enemy, Satan, because there is evil and temptation around us all the time, and because remaining sin still lives, leaves us susceptible to attack, we live every day in a war zone. We live in a daily state of spiritual war and must therefore live with eyes wide open, heart engaged, mind alert, and protective gear in place. That protective gear is talked about here in Ephesians chapter 6. And I think most Christians are familiar with this classic treatment of spiritual warfare uh, written by the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And here in these 10 verses, we find everything we need to know for winning the war against Satan and his forces, both without and within. And if you're not familiar with these verses, you need to know that these are the clearest verses in the Bible about spiritual warfare. Clearest instruction you'll find anywhere in the Bible about this subject. And it's really been the subject of some incredible expositions over the course of church history. If you are a lover of the Puritans, you may be familiar with the English Puritan, lived back in the 17th century, named William Gurnall. He was a pastor. He wrote a three-volume work on this passage called The Christian Incomplete Armor. It's close to 1,500 pages that he wrote on these 10 verses. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, probably a more familiar name, the renowned British doctor turned preacher, wrote a six-volume commentary on the book of Ephesians. The last two volumes are titled The Christian Warfare and The Christian Soldier, so this is like this much. It takes about a foot and a few more inches on my, in my library shelf. And the last two volumes are devoted to these 10 verses. He preached 52 sermons on Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20. So I figured you could handle at least two. But that should just give us some indication of the depth and the breadth of what is contained in these verses. And again, the heart of this passage is a description of the divinely issued armor essential for our survival amid the relentless onslaught from the enemy. But I, what I'm concerned about is that because Paul was speaking figuratively here, the armor of God tends to be a nebulous, a nebulous concept for many believers. It's kind of this mysterious um, experiential, um, mystical concept? What, what, is, what is actually the armor of God? In other, what, are, what are these six pieces of a Roman soldier's army, or excuse me, armor, what do they actually represent in my life? And, and how do I practically put them on on a daily basis? And so that's the goal of our six-week summer super-study is to to, to try to answer those questions so that you'll be battle-ready and be able to stand your ground in the strength of the Lord. And so today and next Sunday, I just want to introduce us to this concept of spiritual warfare, which, again, will lead us into our study of the armor of God on Wednesday nights beginning June 15th. But for starters, just... To remind you that this letter that Paul wrote to the believers in Ephesus, uh, it can be broken into, into two parts. It can be broken in half, actually. Chapters 1 through 3, Paul explained who we are in Christ. Uh, chapters 4 through 6, he explained how we should live as a result of who we are in Christ. The hinge verse is chapter 4, verse 1, therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. So it's that whole idea of walking in a manner worthy of your calling. And so chapters 1 through 3, he talks about our wealth as Christians. Chapters 4 through 6, he talks about our walk as Christians. Or you could say he describes our riches in Christ and our responsibilities in Christ. Or uh, another way of saying it is you could, he, he starts by talking about our position in Christ and then uh, exhorts us regarding our practice in Christ. And so... From chapter 4, verse 1 on, Paul explained how we should walk, how we should live in unity, in truth, in love, in light, in wisdom, in spiritual harmony uh, as a married couple and as a family and in the workplace. And then he finally comes to the end of the letter, chapter 6, verse 10, and says, finally. And the last issue that he addresses is how we should walk in victory. And Paul used lots of different analogies to explain and illustrate how we should live our lives as Christians. He loved to use the example or the metaphor of an athlete uh, or a farmer or a vessel that was used, um, whether that be a sword or a, or, or a pot. Um, of course, he used the illustration of a sheep. Um, one of his favorites Analogies, however, was that of a soldier. And throughout his letters, Paul likened believers to soldiers fighting in a battle. For example, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 5. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of the fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. So he's using warfare language there uh, to the believers in in Corinth. And then in... um, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 18, he says this, this this command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight. He says it again in chapter 6, verse 12, fight the good fight of faith. He even ends um, 2 Timothy by saying, I have fought the good fight this is 2 Timothy chapter 4 verse 7 but notice 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 3. 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 3 Paul says suffer hardship with me as a good what? soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. So the moment that we become a christian we are automatically enlisted into the lord's army we have no choice it's mandatory there are no exceptions and just as there are huge commitments and a huge cost involved in joining the army there is a huge cost involved in becoming a christian we're required to make major sacrifices we must be willing to endure unpleasant conditions and difficult circumstances we're no longer Uh, free to do the things we used to do or that others may be able to still do. We're no longer consumed with our own personal affairs. We're, We're now concerned with a much greater, a much higher cause. Our whole life revolves around pleasing our commanding officer rather than pleasing ourselves. Now, unfortunately, this is an aspect of Christianity that's often not talked about. I think too many preachers fail to emphasize the cost of Christianity, especially when they're presenting the gospel and inviting people to follow Christ. It's interesting, Jesus, on the other hand, regularly challenged people to count the cost, to consider the cost before ever committing their lives to follow him. You may remember in Luke 14 that Jesus likened being a Christian to building a tower and making sure you have enough money to build it to the finish before you start. And then he went on to compare the Christian life to going into battle against an enemy and making sure you have enough men and the supplies to defeat that enemy. Well, whether or not you ever were challenged to count the cost before you became a Christian, once you committed your life to Christ... I'm sure it didn't take long for you to realize that the Christian life is a battleground, not a playground. And the moment you got saved, your eyes were opened to see that you are in the middle of a raging spiritual battle. And it probably seemed like the enemy immediately started to attack you with greater force And you realize very quickly that you were in enemy territory, that you were being attacked by Satan. And each new day was filled with new trials, temptations, new challenges, new hardships, difficulties you never experienced before. And you realize that Christianity was not something that you could be casually committed to. It's not just something we do on the weekends. It's a daily struggle that demands all of our time and all that we are. From the looks of it, you would think that a lot of Christians just view the Christian life like a bunch of friends strolling through the mall, window shopping, and sipping on Frappuccino's. It's kind of a fun, casual experience rather than a Delta Force unit walking through a jungle that has landmines and booby traps everywhere. That is more of a realistic perspective of the Christian life. And again, I think one of the first things that a new believer notices is that the world looks different all of a sudden. It's no longer their friend, it's their enemy. And they find themselves hating the very things that they once loved They also look at themselves differently. They're repulsed by the sinful desires, the the, the sinful cravings that they once freely indulged and now they seek to restrain them. And they get frustrated when they can't seem to overcome their old habit patterns and they can appreciate Paul in Romans chapter 7 where he was expressing his frustration in in the sanctification process. Why do I keep doing the things I don't want to do and I don't do the things I know I should do? And Paul explained this this battle that goes on inside of every believer, this battle between the flesh and the spirit. Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, I say, walk by the spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets the desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. They also become aware of Satan's deceptive and dominant influence in the world and in their lives. That he is a deceiver. That he is someone who is crafty, it says in 2 Corinthians 11.3. He leads people astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. He takes people's captive To do his will, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24. And eventually the enemy comes clearly into focus. And we see that we're not merely facing a singular attack. In fact, we're surrounded. We're being attacked from three different directions by three different enemies. What are they? The world, the flesh, and the devil. Paul introduced these three enemies earlier in Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, that Satan, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath even The rest. That's the bad news. The good news is that through his death and resurrection, Jesus Christ disarmed and defeated these three enemies. Colossians chapter 2, verse 15 says, When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. We're going to be studying shortly in Peter. 1 Peter chapter 3, a very strange text, chapter 3 verse 21, corresponding to that, baptism now saves not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. Talking about the victory that Christ secured for us through his Death and resurrection. And so he conquered the world. In this world, we'll have many troubles, but I have overcome the world. Jesus said, john sixteen thirty three. He's also conquered the flesh, Romans six six. We are no longer slaves to sin. And he's also conquered the devil. Hebrews chapter two. love this. Hebrews chapter two, verse fourteen. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. So I say all that just to remind us that Paul's description of spiritual warfare here in Ephesians is based on the foundational truth that as believers, we have already won the victory in Christ. Satan is a defeated foe. We do not fight for victory. We fight from victory. In other words, we don't have to sit around and pray that God will give us victory over sin and Satan because he already has. Do you understand? We simply need to ask the Holy Spirit to help us appropriate and apply Christ's victory in our lives. And in Ephesians chapter 6 verses 10 through 20, Paul showed us how to practically appropriate and apply our victory in Christ. And the way I like to view this passage is that Paul is like a seasoned military general rallying his troops and briefing them for battle and laying out a war strategy And in these 10 verses, Paul provided four tactics for standing firm against the attacks of Satan and his forces. Four tactics for standing firm against the attacks of Satan and his forces. What are these four tactics? Number one, solely rely on your commander. We're going to look at that this morning in verses 10 and 11. Secondly, wisely know your enemy. Wisely know. Know your enemy. We're going to look at that next week in verses eleven and twelve. Thirdly, regularly wear your protective gear. Regularly wear your protective gear, and that's going to be the subject of our summer super study for six weeks. We're going to look at our protective gear and what it what it means and how we put it on. And then finally, number four, the fourth tactic is vigilantly fight on your knees. Vigilantly fight on your knees, and I'm not quite sure where we're going to fit that in, but we'll fit it in somewhere at the end. But let's look at this first tactic this morning, solely rely on your commander, solely rely on your commander. Look at verse 10, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, put on the full armor of God. So the first thing that Paul wanted us to do or wanted to do, I guess, in this letter is to wake us up to the reality that we are at war. And he's like, at this point, a a war-hardened drill sergeant calling his raw recruits to to attention at boot camp. And he felt the weight of the responsibility to provide us with, with the basic training we need to survive in battle. And essentially, what he's saying here is listen up, troops. You're in the army now. And it's my job to turn you into a soldier. And you need to do exactly what I tell you, because if you follow my instructions, you'll come back alive. But if you don't, you're going to come back in a body bag. And so, in these first two verses, Paul barked out two orders or two commands. The first one is to be courageous, to be courageous. Notice he says to be strong in the Lord. This is a present passive command, which means this is something that is is done to us rather than something we do. In other words, what he's saying here is that we should be continuously strengthened and empowered by the Lord. In other words, don't rely on your own strength. Rely on God's strength. Perhaps this is uh, a reminder to you, like it is to me, of um, when God ordered Joshua to be strong and courageous, not just once, but three times. This is back in Joshua chapter 1, a familiar uh, portion of uh, the story of Joshua, Joshua chapter 1. Verse six, be strong and courageous for you shall give this people possession of the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Again, the context, Moses has died. The mantle of the leadership of the nation of Israel has been handed off to Joshua and now it's his responsibility to lead this new generation of Israelites into the promised land. But in order to do that, they gotta cross the Jordan River and their very first battle is gonna be with Jericho, this fortified city. And so God says to Joshua, be strong and courageous for you shall give this people possession of the land which I swore to their fathers to give them, only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left so that you may have success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your ways prosperous and then you will have success." Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And so in a similar way, I think Paul was exhorting us to be brave, to be bold, to be courageous, to not be cowards, but to to boldly go into spiritual battle trusting and depending on the Lord. And if you remember back in Joshua, Joshua chapter 5, God followed up his call to to courage by sending an angel to visit Joshua. In Joshua chapter 5 verse 13, it says, Now it came about when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand, and Joshua went to him and said, Are you for us or for our adversaries? Are you one of us or are you one of the enemy? And he said, no, rather I indeed come now as the captain of the host of the Lord. In other words, I'm not one of you and I'm not one of them. I've come to take over. And it says that Joshua fell on his face to the earth and bowed down and said to him, what has my Lord to say to his servant? The captain of the Lord's host said to Joshua, Remove your sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy and Joshua did so. So here was Joshua strategizing how he was gonna conquer Jericho and he looks up and he sees this guy holding this drawn sword and he asks him who he is and he says, I'm here to take over. I'm the captain of the Lord of hosts. And so for Joshua as the acting general of Israel's army, that must have really bolstered his confidence. That that conquering Jericho no longer depended on his wisdom or his strength or his experience, but on the Lord's strength and the Lord's strategy. This was the Lord's battle, not his battle. And as long as Joshua depended on this captain, victory was assured And so his confidence, his, his courage was rooted in the proven power of his new commanding officer. You think about that. Where does a soldier's courage come from? It's from usually his, his commander-in-chief, his general, his captain. And a soldier's bravery comes from his confidence in the person and, and the power of the one in charge. For those of you who are familiar with the story of Braveheart, right? The valor of the Scottish warrior William Wallace inspired his countrymen to, to fight with great courage and with reckless abandon. And in a similar way, our confidence in the strength and skill of our captain and commander, who is Jesus Christ should inspire us to be courageous in the battle against Satan and as long as we depend on him victory is assured Romans 8:37 but in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us 1 Corinthians 15:57 but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ Notice what Paul goes on to say here in verse 10, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. In other words, God is the source of our strength. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Colossians one twenty nine. Paul said, for this purpose also I labor striving according to his power, which mightily works Within me. First John 4:4. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. So the first command here that Paul gave us as Christian soldiers is to rely on God's strength and not our own. But the fact that we have divine strength is not only the only thing. That should inspire us to fight courageously. We have something else. We have divine protection. Listen to Paul's second command in verse 11. He says, finally be strong in the Lord in the strength of his might. Here it is. Put on the full armor of God. So number one, we need to be courageous. Number two, we need to be armed. He says, put on the full armor of God. Clothe yourself. Get suited up. This is a present imperative which is used in the Greek language to describe something that you have to do more than once. This is not a, a, you know, get suited up once, but this is something you have to do continuously. This is something you have to do on a regular basis. That's why the third tactic is to regularly wear your protective gear. Not every once in a while, but always. In other words, sleep with your armor on. So he says, put on the full armor of God, literally the panoplia in the Greek. And this is, you say, well, what is this armor? What is it? Where did I get it? Well, I think at the moment of salvation, God, by his spirit, provides every believer with an impenetrable suit of armor. It's like government issue. Here you go. You got it. Here's your helmet. Here's your gun. Here's your belt, right? God gives it to us when we enlist in the Lord's army. And he goes on to describe the pieces of our divinely issued armor in verses 14 through 17. We already read that. There's the belt of truth. There's the breastplate of righteousness. There's the shoes of peace. There's the shield of faith. There's the helmet of salvation, and there's the sword of the Spirit. We need to understand that every one of these pieces of armor has been strategically fashioned by God and is vital for our survival. In other words, we're not at liberty to pick and choose which pieces of armor we want to wear that day on any given day. Because without all of it, we leave ourselves open to attack. We make ourselves vulnerable. And the only way we'll ever be able to resist the devil is if we are fully armed all the time. Notice he says, put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm. And I want to point out something. That little phrase, stand firm, Uh, is used three times it's it's a military term by the way it means to to stand and hold out in a critical position on the battlefield to hold your ground to not fall to not fall back to not retreat notice he says here in verse 11 so you'll be able to stand firm notice he says it again in verse 13 Take up the full armor of God so that you'll be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. And a third time in verse 14, stand firm. Three times, stand firm, stand firm, stand firm. And when I think of what it means to to stand firm, I get the image in my mind of a battlefield after a bloody battle where there are dead and wounded bodies strewn all over the place. But as the smoke clears and the dust settles, you, still, you, see, you see one soldier still standing. Paul wanted us to be that soldier. And we can be that soldier. As long as, as long as we rely on God's strength and utilize the equipment he's provided for us. But without God's strength, without God's protection, we are no match for Satan, And I think this first tactic to standing firm against Satan is, is humbly realizing that we don't have what it takes in and of ourselves to defeat Satan. It's impossible to stand your ground against Satan on your own. You will lose every time if you try. Because when we self confidently rely on our own strength, in other words, we don't spend time in God's Word, we don't pray, we don't stay vitally connected with other believers within the local body of Christ, we are bound to fall. You think about Peter and his hellish hat trick, denied the Lord three times. How'd that happen? Well, I think if you follow the story, you look at the context of what led up to that threefold denial of Christ, it was simply the result of him relying on his own strength. Remember when Jesus said that all of you are gonna fall away before this thing's all over? And Peter... Proudly proclaimed, even though everyone else will fall away, I will never fall away from you. And Jesus said before the rooster crows, tomorrow morning you will deny me three times. And if you remember, after he said that, they all went to the garden together where Jesus went off to pray. And before he did that, he brought Peter, James, and John with him a little further And told them to watch and what? Pray. And rather than watch and pray, what did they do? They slept. And so it should come as no surprise that when the soldiers arrived to arrest Jesus, Peter jumped into action, drew his sword, and relied on his own strength all he had to work with. And we know, based on the Gospels, that that Satan had asked permission to sift Peter like wheat, right? And Jesus told Peter that he had prayed that even though he would fall, his faith would not fail. And Peter had to learn the hard way About the necessity of being sober and remaining alert for your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. 1 Peter 5.8. So whenever we stumble and fall into sin, guess what? It's our own fault. It's our own fault. Because we either relied on our own strength or we failed to put on our armor. There's no other reason for us to fail or to fall. God has given us everything we need to stay standing in the fight against Satan. But only those who humbly depend on the strength and the the armor that God provides will remain standing. Without God's power, without God's protection, we will fall every time. So, first and foremost, if we're going to stand our ground against Satan and his forces, we must solely rely on God rather than ourselves. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so you'll be able to stand firm. But that's not all, there's more. He says that you might stand firm against the schemes of the devil. And then he goes on in verse 12 to describe the enemy army and what it looks like and how it operates. And so we must also be aware of the awesome power of the one we're up against. And unless we know who. Satan is and what he can do, we will have a difficult time defeating him. And so next week, we're going to look at the second tactic, how we are to wisely know our enemy. Let's pray. Father, thank you for preserving this vital text for our study today. Lord, any of us who have been a Christian for any length of time know that, that we're part of a spiritual army. We're, we're part of a, a spiritual war. It's all invisible. That's what makes it so difficult sometimes to, to make sense of all this and to practically put it into practice in our lives. But I ask that your spirit would help us to do that You promised to send your spirit to uh, lead us into all truth and to apply the things that we learn from your word. And so would you do that as only you can. And Lord, as we launch into uh, kids camp tomorrow morning, I pray that you would grant grace to our teachers who are going to unpack this passage to children for five days, that your spirit would work powerfully through them, and Lord, as we consider the pieces of armor in, more in depth during our summer study on Wednesday nights, Lord, that this would be revolutionary for my life, it would be revolutionary for everyone's lives who's involved, Lord, that we might walk in the victory that you have already secured for us in Christ, we pray this in his name. Amen.